everyone, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are in Lesson 22 of the Torah Bible Study Series, The Gospel According to Moses, Exodus. Now, in the two previous lessons, Lesson 20 and 21 in this series, we dealt with the question, Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Or, another way of putting it, Did God take away the king's free will? Or, uh, John 3.16. Does John 3.16 mean what it says? That God loved the whole world that he gave his son? Or, that God loved the whole world except Pharaoh that he gave his only son? Or does God create specific men and women for damnation? In other words, are we all predestined, some of us, for salvation? Once saved, always saved, we can never lose our salvation, and some of us have been predestined for judgment, like we would say Pharaoh would be, in terms of perhaps some of the way we understand that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So these are critically important studies, and we will show, or we have shown in Lesson 20 and 21, from the Hebrew and not from the English, that God did not take away Pharaoh's free will. He did not harden Pharaoh's heart to force Pharaoh. Something else was going on. Now, these are videos, and they can easily be accessed by going to the website, www.lightamenorah.org. And again, menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H. And it's all one word, Light of Menorah. No spaces. www.lightofmenorah.org And once you get to the website, you'll see either on the right side or on the left side a logo for YouTube. Click on YouTube and it will take you directly to our video channel and it will be pretty obvious. You will see the videos there Lesson 20 and 21 uh, with regards to the Exodus series on this question. And the title of the videos is His Highness's Heavy Heart, Part 1, His Highness's Heavy Heart, Part 2. And you're going to find in these videos strong Jewish scholarly arguments, not Christian non-Jewish arguments and I'm really emphasizing strong Jewish scholarly arguments that really come from an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, rabbi back, back in about the 1500s and so indeed we're gonna see that these arguments from Jewish scholarship from rabbinic Jewish scholarship talks about fact that God could never have hardened Pharaoh's heart. So this is not based upon the whims of a rabbi or the whims of some Gentile Bible teacher, Bible historian like me, or rabbinic opinion or views, but it's based upon real scholarship, on real history, on the Hebrew language, and on the ancient Egyptian culture and religion. These are absolutely amazing studies. Now, um, not that they're amazing because there's anything I did. No way 
but they're amazing to see what we've missed and how again over and over again over these thousands of years that we're reading the Bible in English we're disconnected from the ancient culture of Israel the ancient culture of Egypt we are not understanding the Hebrew or having people help us understand the Hebrew and we've missed the entire point I will constantly refer to uh, these videos lessons as we continue on in Exodus because we're going to be entering the face-off between Yahweh the Lord and Pharaoh so lesson 20 and 21 those videos focused in on one verse Exodus 7 verse 3 but now we're going to continue on and we're in Exodus 7 starting in verse 4 and I'm going to read through 13 and again reading from the New American Standard version of the Bible when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it, as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. Just as an aside again, as I'm reading here, the word Lord is capitalized, all capitalized here in the New American Standard. It could very well be in the same uh, as in your Bible, the NIV or the King James or ESV, which means the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew here has God's name, yud Hey vav Hey, the Tetragrammaton. And so I pronounce God's name Yahweh. There are other people who pronounce it a different way, but you'll see me probably using Yahweh, what I think is the way you pronounce God's name rather than Lord. So I just wanted to bring that up, that again, that Lord here in the Old Testament is a cover for the actual uh, word, actual name, God's name. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and they thus they did just as Yahweh had commanded, and Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had said, or as the Lord had said. One thing I want to let you know, and that is, did the snake that came out of Aaron's rod, did that snake eat the snakes of the Egyptian magicians? No. And that's a point that is so easily confused. It says Aaron's rod, his shaft, his staff, swallowed the staffs, the rods, of the magicians. This will be key as we get into this lesson. Now I first want to focus in on verses 4 and 5 that we just read. And I'm referencing 
Dennis Prager's Torah commentary, Exodus, God's Slavery and Freedom, the Rational Bible. And Dennis Prager, we know him as a brilliant scholar of our times, a great conservative talk show host, but as we find out, Dennis Prager is a deeply religious Jewish man. And on top of that, his life is centered on one thing and one thing only, and that is teaching the Bible, teaching Torah. Now, Prager suggests that there's three reasons for the plagues. And I think any Christian taking a look at Prager's views would agree. Let's go to verse 4. Verse 4 says, When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, by great judgments. So one purpose of the plagues is to coerce Pharaoh to free the Hebrews. Now this makes sense. God first said this to Moses at the burning bush. You can look at this at Exodus 3, verses 8 and 9, and then in Exodus 3, 19 through 20. So the Bible just verifies this. That, that's clear. The purpose of the plagues, the judgments, these great signs that God is going to have Moses and Aaron do before Pharaoh are to coerce Pharaoh to let the people go. Now let's go to verse 5. In verse 5 we read, Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Now when we take a look at that verse, it says the Egyptians shall know. The Hebrew word there is yada. The Strong's number is H3045. And technically speaking, yada is no, but it's no in a different way. It's experiential knowing. In other words, if I'm out in the backyard and somebody sprinkles me with the hose um, and it happens to be my wife playing tricks on me, uh, I have an experiential knowing that she is goofing around and I know what it feels like to be sprinkled by her with the cold water from a hose. That's experience. It's an experience. The other thing is, is that, okay, I know my wife's in the backyard and she's in the garden. No, no, I just know that. But I'm not experiencing getting wet with the hose because I'm not out there with her. It's an experiential knowing. So the second purpose, as Prager would suggest, is that Egypt and Israel will know, have an experiential knowing of who God is, that the God of Abraham is the only God. And this is for Israel too. You can go to Exodus 16 verse 6 or Exodus 16 verse 12. We'll get there and we'll be talking about that as we get to those verses. Now Dr. John Creed, a brilliant Christian theologian and Egyptologist and archaeologist and a Bible historian, he talks about the fact that it seems like God also is an evangelist at this point as we talk about him wanting Egypt to know him. So reading from the study commentary on Exodus by Dr. Don Creed, he says God's intention in bringing the plagues on Egypt is primarily judgmental. We'll take a look at that just a second as well. However, in another sense it is evangelistic. During the plagues, for example, some of the Egyptian people came to believe the words of God. 
and subsequently acted upon them. And we can read that in Exodus 9, verse 20. And perhaps some of the Egyptians participated in the Hebrew escape from Egypt. So, God is trying to bring many of the Egyptians to be believers. And this makes sense. God, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in Isaiah 19.25, God says he loves the Egyptians and he calls the Egyptians his people. Now, understanding this, one wonders, did many Egyptians, who through the course of the plagues that we're going to be about, go, about to go through here, one wonders that before they got to the tenth plague, and that is the curse upon the firstborn and the death of the firstborn, did they hear what God told the Hebrews about the Passover and the blood on the doorposts and so on? And did they come to their neighbors, the Hebrew neighbors, and say, can we join you in your home so we too are protected by the blood? It's very interesting. The Bible doesn't say it, and it is speculation, but you begin to wonder that they were saved by the blood because they had come to know Yahweh. So yes, I think it's easy to concur with Dennis Prager. The second purpose that the Egyptians and Israel would know, Yada, Adonai, the God of Abraham, an experiential knowing we have to realize the Egyptians and the Hebrews in the course of, this, of, of the events of Exodus, they did experience God's judgments and his awesome signs in Egypt and so that they did have an experiential you may recall Jesus saying something about knowing and I'm gonna to go to Matthew 7 verses 22 to 23 when he stated many will say to me on that day Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness now the Greek word for know is genosko it's Strong's number is G 1097 and when you go into the Thayer's Greek lexicon Thayer's will show that the normal Hebrew word that the Greek word genosko translates in the Septuagint. Remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures from the Hebrew to the Greek. And genosko is that Greek word that translates yada. Jesus is saying that it's not your ministry, it's not your works, it's not your words. He's basically saying, I never knew you. I never had an experiential knowing of you. A deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. Experientially. Not just head knowledge. Yes, Jesus came for relationship and not for religion. 
And this experiential knowing, this yada, it is an intertwining of our lives in Jesus and allowing him to do the same. Just imagine the picture of our relationship with him. He's the bridegroom and we're the bride. This is not some sort of God-believer thing. He's the bridegroom. Yes, it's God-believer, but Jesus is trying to get at the deep intimacy of us with him and him with us. Now, according to Prager, there's a third purpose of the plagues, and it's very difficult, and it's very problematic. The third purpose of the plagues is retributive punishment. That is national punishment or collective punishment. In other words, it's punishment and judgment upon the entire nation of Egypt. Now it's somewhat justified because when we go to Exodus chapter 1 verse 22, Pharaoh ordered all the Egyptians, the Hebrew is very precise, all the Egyptians, everybody in Egypt, to participate in the mass murder of the newborn Hebrew boys. All Egypt. So now the question is, will God bring judgment and retributive punishment upon a nation and upon all its people for some great national evil even though some are innocent? Remember Shifra and Pua in Exodus 2. And if you were in that lesson on Exodus 2, I presented a very interesting idea, and again from Dennis Prager, that it could very well be that Shifra and Pua are probably Egyptian midwives and not Hebrews. And if that's the case, what's dramatic about that is they saved Hebrew boys. They went against the orders of the government and they saved those little boys. Wow. But Shifra and Pua are probably Egyptian women and they're innocent. You would say they're righteous before God, and they probably experienced the awful consequences of the plagues. Let's consider Dennis Prager's comments. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to his Exodus commentary of the Rational Bible, and some of his comments are really, really critical. He goes on to say, the punishments inflicted on Egypt raise the difficult issue of what is known as collective guilt. Specifically, was it right to punish the Egyptian people for decisions made by the Pharaoh? The Torah answers is yes, because the evils inflicted by the Egyptians on the Hebrews were not inflicted by a few individuals, but by the Egyptian people, though presumably not every single Egyptian over the course of... Uh, not every single Egyptian. The Torah made the collective nature of Egyptian participation in the enslavement, torment, and murder of Israelites clear in the first chapter of Exodus. In verse 22, I said chapter 1, verse 22. 
The Torah also makes it clear when it comes to individual crimes, as opposed to national crimes, evil is to be punished only on an individual level. Thus, if a member of a family or clan murders a member of another family or clan, it is expressly forbidden to punish the murderer's family or clan. That is one of the great moral advances inherent in the much misunderstood Torah law, eye for an eye and life for a life. Every punishment must be equivalent to the crime, not more, and must only be inflicted on the perpetrator, not his family. Except for capital punishment for murderers, the other punishments are all financial, not physical. You can see the commentary, and again his commentary on Exodus 21. But when it comes to mass evil committed by a nation, there can indeed be collective guilt. We cannot deny national evil just because not every member of a nation was guilty. Take slavery in America. The whole American nation paid a terrible price, as the whole Egyptian nation did because of the national crime of African slavery. America fought its civil war because of slavery, a war in which as many Americans died as in all the other American wars combined. A list that includes World War I and II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, over 700,000. A statistic particularly striking given America's population in 1860 was only 31 million. Statements on slavery by two, American, two of America's greatest presidents affirm the notion of collective guilt. Thomas Jefferson, the third American president and author of the, uh, America's Declaration of Independence, warned that Americans will one day collectively pay for the sin of slavery. His quote is, from Thomas Jefferson, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. We talk about President Lincoln and his quotes that God will punish the USA for slavery. And he said to deny this, to deny that God will punish the country for slavery, as he told his friends, is to deny that there is a God governing the world. Lincoln knew his Bible. While he did not regularly attend church, he constantly studied the scriptures. As he put it, in regard to the great book, I have but to say, it is the best gift God has given to man. But for it, we could not know right from wrong. Wow. So the Hebrew is clear. It's all Egypt. Now I want you to consider this also from the United States of America's greatest preacher, Billy Graham. And he was asked, does God punish whole nations as well as individuals? And this writer who's writing to Billy Graham, I don't understand how he could do that because even the worst countries must have some good people in them, don't they? And for Billy Graham, he goes in and he says, the Bible certainly teaches that God judges nations as well as individuals when they deliberately turn their backs on him and ignore his moral laws. The Bible says he will judge the nations, cursing the rulers of the whole earth. 
and the Bible gives numerous examples. Now let me just give you some examples. Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19, all the Canaanite na nations, Genesis 15, 16, Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6, and Joshua, the northern kingdom of Israel under Ahab, 2 Kings chapter 17 and Isaiah 10, Babylon attacking Assyria and Assyrian being judged in the book of Nahum, and Judah, Judah being judged and the first temple being destroyed as we read in 2 Kings 24 through 25. So indeed, as Billy Graham says, the Bible gives us numerous examples of this truth, even in the life of ancient Israel, the nation through which God would bring salvation to the world. The prophet Jeremiah, for example, repeatedly urged the people of his day to repent of their idolatry and immorality, and repeatedly they rejected his message. His words of warning could almost be directed at our own time. Jeremiah says they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. It's in Jeremiah 8, verse 12. Eventually that nation fell to an outside invader. So indeed, Dennis, or I mean, uh, Billy Graham ends off this response to this person who wrote to him. He says, pray to, for our nation, pray for our world as well. Our greatest need as individuals as a nation is to turn to God and seek his forgiveness and mercy. May that begin in our own life as you open your heart to Christ. <laughs> and here's Billy Graham talking about retributive punishment on the United States. And it's delayed. Look what we've done. Here in 2021, 62 million babies have been aborted. And in Proverbs 6, God hates the shedding of innocent blood. In the United States, we're, dying God, we're denying God's creation. <laughs> Teaching that men have babies and animals have the same rights and dignity as men and women. Men marrying men, women marrying women. His wrath must come. And the interesting question is, has it already started? This is a difficult issue. Difficult to come to grips with. Judah conquered and exiled this temple destroyed and the innocent and righteous people suffered think about it we know who they are five of them at least Ezekiel Daniel and Daniel's three friends that we know famously as Shadrach Meshach and Abednego so some of you may disagree that God does not punish a nation for its collective guilt or some of you might say, oh yeah, he will, but he'll protect the innocent. For me, my opinion is I concur with Dennis Prager. I concur with Billy Graham. I also concur with the Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN's founder, Pat Robertson. He had a great article that I found at CBN. 
The article was called, Is America Under God's Judgment? And Reverend Robertson's view is, yes. And the things that are happening to us today are only a foretaste of what's to come. He has an interesting statement in in his article, and he says, we're coming to a point in the United States because of what's happening in our government that there's the choice is going to be not God and country but the choice is going to be God or country it's going to be the same decision the early Christians had to make in the seven churches of the book of Revelation when they were faced with the fact that who is God Jesus or the Roman Emperor And many of them said they would choose God and not country. And the thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians that were murdered. The church has to return and become an alternative alternative society. It must be counter-cultural. And I remember these words in Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. I'm going to go on a little bit further here. Lift up your eyes around about and see They all gather together and they come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. And indeed, this is that shining light we need to be in the midst of the darkness of the culture of the United States today. And indeed, it probably is going to come down to that choice between God or country. Just like Pat Robertson has expressed in his article. So indeed, God help us today. Bring us close to you, Adonai. Blessed Yeshua, please help us come and have Yada in you. An experiential knowing. Help us be your bride. Help us understand you are our bridegroom. And understand the deep, intimate relationship that you want to have with us. Help us return to do what you want us to do, and that is to make disciples. And in those days, the understanding was a disciple is to be just like their rabbi. In other words, we are to be like you. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be like me, for I'm like him. The imitation of Christ. So we'll continue on. And I just want to make a short comment on Exodus 7, verse 7. And uh, verse 7 says, Moses and Aaron did... Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And nowhere in the Torah, nowhere, 
does it say Moses was 40 years old when he killed the Egyptians or the Egyptian and fled Egypt? Nowhere. That's a rabbinic view. You can actually go into uh, books that are called the Midrashim and you will find that there's one rabbi said he fled when he was 12. Another rabbi, a very famous rabbi in Judaism called Rashi says, no, 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 no. He fled when he was 20. Another rabbi says, no, he fled when he was 40. We have three rabbinic views. Now this is called Midrash, Midrashim. And we have three great rabbis disagreeing. Now you go to Acts 7, verse 23, Stephen is surrounded by the lynch mob. And in his discourse to the people around him, he said that Moses was 40. No, it's not in the Torah. Now remember, Stephen is about to be martyred and there's no New Testament. It's being written. All they had was the Hebrew Scriptures. Stephen knows the Hebrew Scriptures and nowhere, nowhere in those days does it say that Moses was 40 when he fled Egypt. What's going on? Now, it's interesting that in Judaism, 40 becomes a very symbolic number. It's uh, a number that means completeness or the ending of a process or the completeness of a pro process. So the rabbis would say, we have something very interesting here because it took 40 years for Moses to complete his mission in the Exodus. And so there were 80 years prior to that. And so when you take a look at the periods of Moses' life, the period of being in Egypt, and the Mos uh, then the period of being in Midian, and then the period of uh, returning to Egypt, and then the Exodus, uh, it's easy to see that how that one rabbi uh, in, I th if I recall, it's called um, uh, the Exodus Rabbah, the Midrash of the Exodus, how he said it was 40. So it's a picture. So Stephen saying that Jesus was 40 when he left Egypt is probably only a rabbinic view, something that they held to in Jesus' day. It's still undetermined. But I like the picture. So then we come to the famous encounter the famous encounter starting in verse 7 through 13. Actually, verse 8 through 13. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Now, by the way, the Hebrew word there is serpent. It does not mean snake. It's very interesting. It normally means a terrible lizard. A terrible serpent. It's not the word that can be used for snake. Now it's fascinating that we look upon it as snake and I think that what's going on here is this choice of word by Moses for serpent is related to something here in the Egyptian culture. We'll get to that in just a second. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And again, this is a, a, a terrible lizard, not necessarily a snake. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. 
for each one threw down his staff and they turned into again this terrible lizard the serpent but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said now Dr. John Kareed in his Torah commentary has an amazing commentary on this event and when we go to this event event or we go to his commentary he talks about the fact that this event of the staffs and the serpents is related to the destruction of the entire Egyptian army and their chariot forces at the Red Sea and he said there are parallels here and he said therefore the entire plague narrative has to be considered in light of these two events that are bookends to the ten plagues so when we look at this what happens is as we take a look at Dr. Kareed's view he said in Exodus 7 verse 12 Aaron's rod swallows the rods of the magicians. Now, swallow, the Hebrew word is bala, and the Strong's number is H1104. Now, what's interesting, it's used again in Exodus 15, verse 12, where the Egyptian army is swallowed up. The Hebrew word is bala. So we have the word bala here in this confrontation between God and Pharaoh and the staffs and the serpents and also with God's confrontation with the mighty army of Egypt and their chariot forces and we have the word swallow that's connected in both it's not used in between at all on top of that in the first event and the last event the staff is used first Aaron's staff here and in the last event it's Moses's staff So this first event, as I mentioned to you, that it says serpent, it probably does not mean snake. It means a terrible lizard. However, Moses is confronting Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was probably wearing his crown, and on his crown, more than likely, there would have been a golden cobra. And that golden cobra represents the terrible lizard the terrible monster the terrible serpent that is called the goddess Uraeus she is pictured as a cobra indeed she's a goddess and so this is a terrible lizard a terrible serpent Uraeus the goddess Uraeus the cobra if you will provided protection of Pharaoh and protection of his power so we have Aaron's staff swallowing the staff of the magicians and the staff of the magicians the staff of Aaron had turned into this terrible lizard which probably represents the goddess Uraeus this terrible goddess who had all this power and all this might and protected Pharaoh 
Matter of fact, when we go to the IVP Bible background commentary of the Old Testament, and I highly recommend these Bible commentaries. There's the IVP, InterVarsity Press, IVP Bible commentary of the Old Testament, and there's also the IVP Bible background commentary of the New Testament. The, you, you've got to have these. You've got to have these to actually get more deeply involved in obviously putting the Bible in its historical context. So in the IVP, Bible background commentary of the Old Testament, the scholars write, so for instance, there was an Old Kingdom pyramid text that is uh, that uses the portrayal of one crown of, a pharaoh, of the pharaoh swallowing another to tell of Upper Egypt's conquest of Lower Egypt, because when Pharaoh has a crown, he has the white outside and the red inside. These are representative of Lower and Upper Egypt. Also in the Egyptian coffin text, swallowing is a magical act that signifies the absorption of the magical powers of that which was swallowed. Thus the Egyptian magicians would have concluded that the power of their rods had been absorbed into the rod of Aaron. Whoa! This is awesome. Because now, Uraeus has been destroyed. The power and protector of Pharaoh, this terrible lizard. And we remember the last event. The last event, the army, the great army of Pharaoh, and his mighty chariot force were totally destroyed. Uraeus could not protect Pharaoh because his army and all of his power was destroyed. So going back to Dr. Kareed's commentary, he said, such parallels establish that Exodus chapter 7 verses 8 through 13 as a microcosmic prototype of the imminent national catastrophe coming upon Egypt. And so indeed, therefore, the plague narrative must be considered in light of the serpent confrontation. And this event also defines for the reader the true issue at stake in the entire Exodus struggle. The issue is a war between the God of the Hebrews and the deities of Egypt. This is not between Moses and Pharaoh. This is between the God, the only God, the true God, and the deities of Egypt. So it was a question of who was the one true God, who was sovereign over the operation of the universe, and whose will would come to pass in heaven and on earth. The serpent drama introduces us to that theological issue in grand form. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, engages Pharaoh, a God of Egypt, in a contest of power and will. And God wins, as we would suspect. So indeed, later on, Moses even calls his staff the staff of God. This is in Exodus 17, verse 9. Pharaoh's kingship is gone. His power is gone. His staff is powerless. Defeated by the one God, the only God, the true God. Yahweh Echad. So this whole concept of the one God, the unique God, the one and only one, 
is the meaning of the word Echad. You'll know the verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. No, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is Echad. He is the only one, the unique one. There is no other God but Him. This is the meaning. So we get to verse 13. And it says, Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now in actuality, trying to bring the English to you uh, as I translate the Hebrew, it really says, He gave courage to his heart, and Pharaoh did not listen as Yahweh had said. So it's a little bit slightly different. Because it says, yes, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. But the Hebrew is, he gave courage to his heart, and Pharaoh did not listen as Yahweh had said. And once again, I refer you to the lessons 20 and 21, the video lessons that I talked to you about, where we talked about the issue, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? You really have to watch those. So the grammar doesn't say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart here in verse 13. The grammar is clear when you go into the Hebrew. He hardened his heart. In other words, he gave courage to his heart. And Pharaoh did not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. So Pharaoh gave himself courage. He didn't harden his heart. He strengthened it. He strengthened his mental attitude, his mental resolve, his mental convictions. You see, heart both in the Egyptian culture and the Hebrew culture, does not mean emotions. It does not mean feelings. It does not mean passion. It means the mental abilities, our mental outlook. So some last thoughts. We see already the beginning of a pattern to these events. Dr. Karad, Dr. Creed shows us that we have the staff that is common in this event and also the staff that appears also in the destruction of the army and the chariot force at the Red Sea and also swallowing the power of the magicians and Uraeus herself, the terrible goddess of Egypt, was swallowed up by Aaron's rod. And later on, it's Moses' rod, but it's the staff again that appears in the confrontation at the Red Sea. We have a pattern. And on top of that, we've got ten plagues in between these two bookends. And there's a pattern here. Let me share with you the pattern. The plagues are in groups of three, except for the last one, which is the, the, the killing of the firstborn. They're all in groups of three. When you study the groups of three, in the first group, the first three plagues, in actuality, if you study all three groups, the first three plagues, then the second three plagues, and the third group of three, in each of those, the first two plagues of each group, Pharaoh is given a warning. But the third plague in each group Pharaoh does not receive a warning. It's like, boom, it happens. 
in these three groups, the first plague of each group involves Aaron going out to Pharaoh with Moses. The second plague, plague of each group involves Aaron, but now he and Moses go to the palace. And the third plague of each group, what happens is Moses is chosen to bring upon the plague with his staff, except for the last plague. It's unique. It's special. Aaron and Moses did nothing, nor did they say anything. They warned. They warned Pharaoh. No staff is used. No staff is used whatsoever. There's an indication that one more plague was coming. But Pharaoh didn't know what the plague was. The death of the firstborn was totally initiated by God. It was the final retributive punishment on all of Egypt. So in lesson 23, in the next lesson, we're going to begin to study each plague. And we're going to ask the question, what else is there in these judgments upon Egypt that we don't see. Certainly, many of us already know that these are definitely plagues against the gods of Egypt. But what else is there? So I will see you then in Lesson 23. And until then, Shalom.